Hello and welcome to Misbehave, the podcast where we explore human behavior in a business context. Season two of Misbehave is all about uncovering behavioral patterns which create success in life and business. We're joined by highly driven, accomplished individuals to assess their behavioral patterns and dive into how behaviors have influenced their journey. This episode features Julian Layton, co-founder of leading digital agency Orange Bus. Alongside his co-founder Mike, Julian grew the business from a two-man band operating from a small attic office to a 150 plus strong agency with offices across the UK. Their high-profile clients included Barber, Aston Martin Racing, HMRC and the BBC. The business went on to sell to Capita in a multi-million pound deal in 2016 with continued growth up to Julian's exit in 2020. Well, welcome to the podcast, Julian. We're so excited to have you with us. Obviously, we know a lot about you, but just for the listeners, do you want to give us like a little bit of a synopsis of your journey? So, yeah, happy to, and thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure, genuinely. So, entrepreneurial journey started very young as a as a as a child. Really, I used to buy uh, things at the uh, cash and carry with my mum. My mum had a coffee shop, and I used to go with her and buy key rings and things and sell them at school. So. I think that's always been in me and it and it never left. And most of my career has involved selling. So I've either bought or sold or, or, or a mixture of both. Worked my way through university doing promoting raves and th- sort of late night events. I left university with a dreadful uh, degree. It wasn't even a university. It was Bradford Nilkley Community College. But I, I told my mum it was university. But I didn't get in. So I ended up working for a meat company, which was pretty desperate um but i was trading i was buying and selling they used to buy huge quantities of meat from abroad and and uh, break them down and sell them to kind of catering butchers and things and so i learned an awful lot about trading negotiating how to build a sale out of nothing how to create a market and and it was a good grounding for all it was a really difficult place to work and not particularly nice um and after getting fired from there which was useful i uh i went to work for ibm or an ibm business partner so anybody who wanted to buy ibm's kit used to I buy it through the business partner network and I work for one of those. So you, you kind of had leads to a certain degree given to you by IBM and then you had to go out and close them. And I learned then about really structured selling, much more complex, uh, large deals. Hated the conformity and the rigidity of IBM. And this was kind of 90s, late 90s. And it was still, there was still kind of IBM blue suited man was still the thing really you were expected to conform. And that, as I'm sure will come on now, isn't one of my strong points. <laughs> uh, so I eventually left there, got an opportunity, had, hit a big deal, got a great bonus, realised they were going to double my target. So pointless staying, didn't have any deals left over for the next quarter, left and started Orange Bus, which at the time, initially I was doing kind of maintenance for on people's servers and computers, which actually I didn't really know what to do, but... I could do enough and then Google the rest was the sort of the long and short of it. And I got away with that for a while. And then a random encounter in the playground of my daughter's school led to somebody asking if, we could, if I could build a website and said yes and found somebody to do it. And at that point realised selling somebody else's time for money was much, much more preferable than, than <laughs> selling your my own. own. Yeah, <laughs> much easier to scale. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of the journey, if you like, to, to starting Orange Bus and that was... 2002, three, maybe started it and, and just did my own thing for a few years until 2006 when I met my co-founder, Mike. I mean, you actually did that quite well in chronological order. Bearing in mind, you have 
100% big picture and your detail and process is pretty small. So I think we need to congratulate Julian for that. So well done. Um, you almost fooled us. <laughs> Probably because I've done it before yeah. and it used to be written for me by somebody who was in charge of copies. So yeah. I guess I just, that all came from the back of my mind somewhere. I didn't even know it was still there. <laughs> It would be good if you could tell us a little bit about your journey when you started the business and how different that felt from working for someone else. You talked about conformity there. Did you feel like you'd had the the sort of the shackles lifted off? And what was that like? Yeah, it was really positive in the one sense in that I was now in charge of how it looked, how it felt, um, how I interacted with clients or with anybody. The challenge was I was really well paid. Working for IBM is, is, a, is a good place to be when you're in your kind of late 20s, early 30s. Good money, nice car, lots of travel. And, and like I said, relatively, and I do mean relatively, but relatively at the time, straightforward to, to, to hit your number. It, it wasn't, you know, you're not knocking on doors without a lead. This is IBM, people want to work with them. So to go from that to being me um, with a brand that I'd invented and, and that I'd, I created the logo, uh, you know, I mean, it, so... That was much harder because actually what I found is nobody wanted to talk to me, if I'm honest. <laughs> a, I thought it was brilliant, but but the reality was that people actually didn't want it. You know, there, there was loads of people doing what I was doing at the time, loads. And so it, it was hard to differentiate yourself. It was really difficult. Um, but that was the first shock was that I couldn't knock on a door and actually get somebody to answer it. And we got I got a lot of rejection in the early days. But the, I loved not working for, for anybody else. Mm-hmm. And actually the money thing was relatively manageable, the fact that I had saved up a bit. Um, I did have a little bit. Although I unfortunately had a, had a scooter crash. I, I used to have a Lambretta and I, I hit a car with it and, and ended up kind of in a wheelchair for months and hospital for ages. So, so I kind of, you can be much better off doing that when you work for somebody else when you get sick pay. <laughs> yeah, it was a really bad time. And, <laughs> yeah, so it, just a little tip. Uh, <laughs> if you're going to have a life-changing accident, try and do it when, when somebody else employed. is going to pay. Yeah. <laughs> And that's interesting because sometimes the misconception, because for the people listening, so you're two, I mean, you've got quite a few that are dominant, but two dominant ones for you. Big picture, so that vision piece and the choices piece where it's all about being able to do lots of different things, not having to do it in a procedural way. Doesn't mean that if you get thrown into a situation that enables you to do that, that it'll be particularly comfortable. I think that's often what we hear is like, they'll say, you know, actually I I like a bit of structure, even though I'm not motivated by it from a behavioral perspective. It's usually just because the structure has a has a comfort with it. It has a bit of a fallback with it sometimes. So it it's interesting to see that you loved one part of it, but the other part of it is when you've done something that for that long and there's a there's security around it, it's like it feels a bit uncomfortable when you first step outside of it. Yeah, for sure. And IBM was, was a really structured environment to work in. Really, yeah. really structured. And um so there is a comfort in that. There's no doubt and I had support I had people that probably were paid to cover some of our deficiencies the 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 sales guys or the sales girls were probably all very similar characters and none of us were particularly good at the admin or the detail side of things so there was other people there to cover those bits which is a brilliant environment to work in in that respect yeah and suddenly you're on your own and there's nobody to cover if you forget to do something it it didn't get done yeah there was literally nobody else but me and that is a challenge as a, as a founder, I think, when you're on your own. Tell us a little bit about the journey, because we know that you're motivated by doing things differently. And you sort of said you came into a space, there was other people in that space. 
what was it for you? And then obviously when Mike joined you, what was it about you guys that you that you felt like positioned you differently? And I know the brand was really important yeah. to you and the look and feel of that. Yeah, the, I mean, the brand was was essential. So the, the brand came about through my, I had a, v, I had a VW camper van mm-hmm. um, and I used to drive, it was my car. So I, when, when I left IBM, um, the company BMW goes back and then and I couldn't afford to buy anything else. And I thought, well, I might as well have something a bit different. Uh, insanely unreliable, obviously, but it was certainly different. And I did used to drive from, you know, to a client or, or from one to another in the van and then I could maybe stop somewhere. It was a camper van, so I could stop and have my lunch, cup of tea or something. And uh, and I be- just became known as Julian with the Orange Bus. That wasn't, the brand originally wasn't Orange Bus. And so it made sense to utilise that opportunity that was that was given to me. It would, it would have been a shame to ignore it. The accountant hated it, which I thought was another validation. <laughs> and I always remember the accountant saying, that's a bloody stupid idea. What would you want to call it? Orange? We might as well call it Green Frog. And there probably is a Green Frog agency, isn't it? <laughs> or, or, or Red Frog or something. I can't remember, but it's bound to be. So, yeah, the brand, I was obsessed with the brand from day one. And we had T-shirts and hoodies and mugs and all sorts of stuff from day one. We, we always wanted, I wanted the brand to look like it could be something you would buy in a shop, like a surf we had a very strong connection with surfing. Mike and I both surfed the van. So all of the, the hoodies and the T-shirts and the brand were all designed as if they were kind of surfwear from the 80s. That was very much my um, cultural reference. And they became really popular, actually. I mean, the hoodies still to this day are, are reasonably desirable. People like them. I think I've still got one of your mugs in my kitchen cupboard, yeah. Well, funny enough, I was at a gig on Friday night. I've got totally left field now. I was at a gig on Friday night and there was a mug behind the counter. What's that? <laughs> Somebody came over and went, there's an orange bus mug there. I've got a photo of the guy. And he was really confused as to why we all thought this was exciting. What it a legacy. Just, it was just yeah, our mug in a, in, a, in a small venue in Biker. <laughs> so that's yeah, what, what a legacy. That's your aspiration, isn't it? In life. <laughs> yeah, so that brand involvement. So tell us a little bit about what that journey looked like when Mike joined you and then what the trajectory of the business was from there. So we had a brand off and I won. Uh, it didn't last long. Um, Mike's brand was was uh, Lamplify, which is, it was a techie joke. So we didn't use that. Um, <laughs> thank God. Thank God, yeah. <laughs> uh, so Mike is a kind of, uh, he's not a techie, computer scientist, um, engineer, inventor, whatever you would call him. Very, very talented, very clever guy. And... It was a kind of perfect meeting in terms of co-founders because I then had somebody I could sell. So Mike wasn't necessarily going to find it easy to sell his own time. Uh, I'd already said I, I was much prefer selling other people's time than my own. So I sold Mike's time and, and we joined forces very quickly. I mean, we did one project together and then joined up formally. Interestingly, when we joined together, whilst it was lifestyle at the time and we both surfed and, and everything else, we very quickly decided... We wanted to build something scalable and something big. There was a, an ex, you know, there was an agency called Think here in Newcastle who became national and international. They were sort of two or three years ahead of us. So we always had a reference point and we could say, we want to be kind of up there. Yeah. We, that, that's what we were aiming for, that sort of level of growth. So it was really handy for us having, having an example of somebody who had done it from the Northeast because with the greatest one in the world, this is a really hard place to start an agency. And I don't care what anybody says about how great the people are and everything. I find that a little bit irritating sometimes. It's We are lovely people, um, but there's lovely people everywhere. And, and I personally thought the isolation of the region mm-hmm. and the fact that there aren't loads of big enterprise businesses up here, 
it's a really hard place to start a service business. So having an agency that we could look at as an inspiration, and they were, and I've told Tarek, who was the founder, you know, I've, I've said that they were, um, I think we might have got as big as them at one point, if not, we won't go into that. <laughs> um, but it was really useful to have that, and, and but that was the aspiration from day one. We never wanted to just build it up to a level and then live off it. It was build it and sell it. And you don't advertise that because your clients and your staff probably wouldn't like it. Yeah. And you don't know how long it's going to take. But in our mind, there would be a point that we would know we'd hit and it was, would be time to sell, which brings its own challenges because you're, you're growing. If you're growing at a, a rapid rate, you can, especially in a service business, you can run out of money because you need people. The only growth only comes from hiring people. So we were constantly hiring all the time and therefore constantly running out of money. Because we find that clients don't pay nearly as quickly in real life as you think they're going to on your spreadsheet. Yeah. And I was in charge of the spreadsheet. And I don't know what, if that came you're not dealing and you're not procedural, so that was a disaster. Absolutely appalling at it. And actually, in the end, once I gave, I gave up the cash flow and we got an actual accountant to do it. But in the early days, I did it because you have to do everything. And it would take me forever. It was always wrong. Um, and then you're making management decisions on inaccurate data. So it's like so many reasons not to do it like that. And then in the later days, if Mike ever saw a spreadsheet open on my screen, he would go mental. What are you doing? And you know what? It's really interesting. Often when we work businesses that it, one of the biggest challenges is when to invest in additional resource or yeah. bring in experts from outside as subcontractors or, or partners. And when you're growing a business from, from scratch, it's really often that's the biggest conundrum. When's the right time? And sometimes with service-based businesses, you, you you can bring in people who are going to cover their costs, but how quickly are they going to do that? Yeah. But those additional services where they don't necessarily cover their cost, yeah. they are a much bigger investment and decision choice. One of your p- biggest patterns is your motivation is, it, it's called power, but it's about liking to lead, liking to have the control being seen to take a lead. Obviously, as you start to grow a business, you have to then start to delegate and yeah. and. And kind of give give over the reins to other people. How did what ex, what was that like for you with that like real strong motivation and and leading and having control? How how easy was that to adapt to? Yeah, it's it's really interesting this bit because whether it's inherent laziness or what I don't know. I couldn't wait to give away work to other people. Now it didn't mean that I didn't want to know what the outcome of that work was, or I still want to make the decision a lot of the time. But I definitely didn't want to do all the work, and actually. I still quite like the idea of doing less than I used to do when I was at IBM. When I first started the business, I thought this would be a way to not work 40 hours a week. And obviously that's incredibly naive when you start a business. But I kept on thinking every time we employ somebody, maybe I can do less hours. Never happened. The accounts guy was just such an obvious decision once we made it because he did everything. He knew the numbers were totally accurate. I mean, like to the pound, because they are penny. And he did it quicker. It, and, and like I say, now we had accurate information. So the stress it removed from our lives because because we were growing so quickly, we never had enough money because I was doing the cash flow. So I always assumed everybody would pay us bang on 28 days or whatever. And obviously that doesn't happen. And I, I, I as a natural optimist, assumed that everything would go really, really well. And you need to factor in things going not so well into your cash flow. And we did, you know, it's, it's easy to talk about now that we're finished, um, now that we've exited, but we did run out of money on more than one occasion and have to find a way to borrow short term so you can hit the wages. And I think it's not something that businesses that are, if you're still running a business, you're not probably going to be honest enough to say, yeah, we struggled to hit the wages six months ago because you'll probably lose all your staff. But the reality is since I've 
told that story a few times. I've met loads of companies that have come up to me and said, founders have said, God, I'm so, so good to know that you went through that because we've been through it as well. It's cash flow that often kills people, isn't it? So why wouldn't you have an expert, somebody actually knows what they're doing, you know, providing that bit of key information. And you know what I think you were really good at doing from the beginning? And obviously we were involved with the business. So I kind of watched this evolution of like you and Mike, and this is where the behavioral stuff gets really interesting and where the deeper insight into behaviors versus just those sort of quite high level personality profiles. Because if you take you and Mike, for people who know you, at a top level, you've got lots of things that are similar about you, but then you've got some core behaviors that are quite different. But then you still had stuff that both of you missed that, for example, the addition of Chris into that brought a totally different dynamic. And I think that appreciation as leaders and co-founders running a business of actually, you know what, there's certain areas where the same. And actually, we've got a gap there just because we're two founders doesn't mean we balance each other out totally. It means they're exactly the same. Lots of our behaviours are very similar. So we still need extra balance in other ways. And that recognition of the fact that we can't be all things to all people and nor should we be the people that are better at this than yeah. us. We were really keen to bring in people that were better than us at everything that mm-hmm. we could. We just thought that was, a, an, a, if you're going to build something to scale, to sell, then being a control freak is going to be a nightmare. Yeah, And I, I'm always somewhat bemused by control freaks that run businesses. And I know one of my very close friends is a, is a very controlling, detail-oriented person and runs a hugely successful company, um, but really hard to get out of that. You know, and if, if you're the one who has the final say on everything and actually more than the final say, you're, you're, you're sort of getting involved in the detail, that's going to be really hard to get out of. Whereas actually by the time we'd scaled Orange Bus up to kind of, I don't know, 80 or 90 people, neither of us were involved in the detail unless we had to be. Yeah. And we really weren't mm. in any way, shape or form involved in any detail. So at that point, you're relying entirely on the quality of the people that you've brought in. And people who are maybe more controlling in wanting to get involved in the detail, whether or not they would hire other people that have such strong personalities, I don't know. I have no idea. But we hired people who were really genuinely excellent at what they did because it meant that we then didn't have to do it. Yeah. And I think something else that's interesting is, especially in the tech world, you see it often where... There can certainly be this misconception that if you enter a business and you plan to exit, that actually the culture's not important. Yeah. And to be honest, you see lots of tech businesses where that's the case. You yeah. know, the whole let's just crunch people's time, let's just get the most out of them. The culture bit is secondary. Now, I think now, now that we're in 2023, people are becoming more aware of culture. But back then, like you guys were still so acutely aware of that, but you built the culture around you guys in a way that felt super authentic. Can you talk a little bit about that and almost that driving force behind that and making sure that that felt like you and you didn't just go down the hole? These are the values that we think we might need to have. Yeah, I think there was a bit... So Mike was ex-IBM as well. Mike, although we didn't know each other, Mike was one of the... I think IBM picked the top 5% of applicants and then take the top 5% of them and put them in the Hursley Labs down in, New, I think, near Southampton. And they kind of give them loads of expensive kit to play with. And and Mike was working on artificial intelligence back in, this is a kind of mid nineties. But we both had a natural rejection to the conformity of, of IBM. And I mean, even something like in the early days, I mean, we made so many mistakes. It's hilarious when you look back, but we rejected the, the, the contracts that we used to have to get people to sign at IBM. So my contracts, when I sold something at IBM, were like 
probably 50 pages. I never read one, but you know, somebody had done one and, <laughs> and, and it, was part, it was part of the deal um, was I had to get somebody to sign it. And we hated that. We wanted to, we were kind of hippie-ish. We wanted to um, have it, you know, if, if you give us this money, we'll just find a way to make it happen, which obviously is rubbish. It doesn't work. <laughs> and what happened is people took advantage of us all the time. Or actually, maybe we were over-promising and... and and couldn't really deliver for the budget that was given to us and caused us so many problems. But uh, but it probably helps describe a little bit the ethos that we started the company. It was meant to be relaxed. It was meant to be a, a cool place to work. We wanted it to be fun from day one. Probably helped by our first big client was O'Neill, the yeah. surf brand, which at the time was kind of ubiquitous on the high street. I mean, there was an O'Neill shop on every single street. And they were an amazing client because they used to send us boxes of clothes, first of all. So, and we didn't have any money back then. So it looked like a really bad catalogue shoot every day in the office because we used to get these boxes of samples and everyone used to wear them. So, yeah, that was, that was very much the vibe in the early days. And we just never let it go. We kept it. And we did all of the stereotypical, you know, the things that are now seen as stereotypical for an agency, pool tables and arcade machines and all of that. We kind of did all that really early on, not for any other reason than we liked playing pool a lot and we thought that's got to be a better idea to to have a chat over a game of pool like you do in the pub we found a lot of our ideas came in the pub so why not bring aspects of the pub into the office was we thought was a perfectly reasonable thing to do um and we did and you know and we had we actually formalized that in the end weirdly beers with, things, with ideas, beers with ideas mm-hmm. yeah and we would bring in external speakers or people from the business anybody could do an hour or or Hold, hold the room for a while and then have questions around any topic as long as it was something creative or different, be it tech or design or anything else. And uh, those that vibe kind of worked really well for us. And I think the one thing that I've noticed since people have started to move away from the team uh, is that that's the thing that, that they, they do miss. And I think it's really that the culture piece, you guys were at the forefront of leading that, even if it wasn't intentional. Like now, I think people have recognised, even in the work we do, like particularly in the UK, people have started to recognise that there's more value put on a working environment and a culture. And definitely since post-COVID, yeah. that that environment is way more important, having a, a sense of purpose and being surrounded by people who have a joint, have joint shared values. And I think that's become way more important. But back when you started, even if it was unintentional, there was something that, you know, allowed you to attract that the right-minded talent and people wanting to sort of all work together and that that collaborative piece you've, you've got a, a a pattern your working preferences is high in proximity which it means that you work most productively when you're in a collaborative environment and you're surrounded by people and actually you, you love that idea of bouncing off each other which you've described beautifully when you're saying bringing in people who were better than me and sharing ideas and where you know you could work collaboratively and I think that definitely plays to your personal work and preference which is often if a leader has that preference, then often, you know, they help shape the rest of the business. But it it has become way more valuable in a business than it used to be, I think. And it's, it's interesting, though, because um, I think there's a lot of corporates still trying to do it. But but it's kind of a little bit what you might call lip service, really. So they have all of the cool furniture and, you know, even maybe a pool table or, you know, a, a drinks cupboard. Or, but... The intent isn't really there. It's not genuine. And I think Mike and I just wanted to design somewhere where we wanted to be. Mm-hmm. That was the thing. And, mm-hmm. and therefore, we recruited people who liked that as well. So, you no, know, it wasn't intentional in that we didn't 
set out specifically to say this is what the culture will be. It just was us. Mm-hmm. And then the people that we hired were very much the same because they came in and thought, this is pretty cool, I'd like to work here. And the people who didn't like it, and there were you know, plenty of people who came in and went, this isn't for me. In fact, loads of people who really wasn't for them. Mm-hmm. That's fine. You know, it's not for everybody. So there, there probably wasn't enough structure for a lot of people. Yeah. Especially in the early days, you really had to be a self-starter to work there. Yeah. But you did then take the intention. I mean, I can't remember now exactly what, maybe about 50 staff. I remember doing that values session. And it was, I mean, I'd always laugh about it because the the overarching word came, well, the two words, food and drink. <laughs> <laughs> We're all over the thing of when we ask people like what they like. But the point being, you did then do like it. And this is often where we say the best cultures come from. They're unintentional to start with. But then when you get to about 50 staff, you need to start codifying it a little bit. But the, but it just felt really holistic. It didn't feel forced because actually the bits of codification that you did that we were involved with was like, it felt authentic. It was your team was saying, we want these things. And the values sounded like, well, some of them did, sounded like they came out of your mouth. It wasn't like integrity, trust, you know, yeah. all the sort of very typical corporate stuff. It sounded like you. And we struggled with that. Actually mm-hmm. trying, we always felt, also not always, for a long time we felt like we needed to be more grown up. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we really did think, well, are we ever going to really going to get these big corporate contracts if we don't start and speak like them? Now, the reality is, yes, you can. Mm-hmm. In fact, authenticity is going to win you those mm-hmm. contracts. But when you're relatively young, both, you know, in real life and in, in your business journey, you do have those moments where you're not entirely sure if that's the right thing to do. Um, so... I'm pleased it won out. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, the um, you know the values thing, we ended up with, I mean, one example, we ended up with a party planning committee where we gave them a budget and it was a cracking budget every year and they could do whatever they want with it. And Mike and I weren't allowed to sit on it. So anybody in the business could sit on that committee and l- decide how to spend that money on what, on what parties. And we had some legendary parties, mm-hmm. um, some of which we, we wouldn't even be able to talk about for legal reasons, probably. <laughs> Misbehave podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's, uh, there's another version of this podcast. Right? <laughs> but but, in, but mine and I weren't allowed to be on it. And that was the point. And we created it and said, now somebody came to us and said, we need to organise, you know, the nights out are great. We need to do it more often. And we were getting too many people to just all go to the pub. So we did it and we, we gave them a budget and then we had a veto. I mean, if they, we never had to use it, but there was a theoretical veto Mm-hmm. Um, you know, don't all disappear on a Wednesday on a flight somewhere or something. <laughs> Not come back to the not, following yeah. Monday. But that didn't, that never happened. Mm-hmm. And again, because of the culture and because of the way that we empowered people and encouraged people to take ownership of things, nobody would have done that. No. So mm-hmm. Everybody understood where the line was, even though the line was never, ever expressly drawn, ever. Not until we sold the business did we draw. We really didn't draw any lines. There was no requirement really to be at your desk from nine to five, unless you needed to be at your desk. If you needed to be at your desk, you know that. We, you know, these are all senior people. There was no, there's no kids in there earning minimum wage who need to be corralled into doing a job. You're either mature enough to do your job or you're not. And my opinion was always, if you can do your job in like three quarters of the time, fine. I'm yeah. massively impressed by people who are just really good at being in the office on time and 
And there'll be people listening thinking, well, that just wouldn't work in our environment. Obviously, this, there is certain environments where you have to be in at certain times and there has to be more structure. And some people need it to be, and without a doubt. For sure. And, I, and there will have, like you said, people that will have not found that environment useful. We know that people who are high detail, high procedure, who really need the structure that actually that environment wouldn't have been good. They wouldn't have been productive and their motivation levels would have been impacted by that, yeah. stress levels. So, you know, it would be good for you to tell us a little bit about what it was like to that that sort of exit yeah. journey. What what was that like for you guys? Once you, I know it was always your big vision yeah. to, to do that and you work towards that, but what was it like when it actually happened? What were some of the challenges, Julian? So in, in the first really bit of important advice we got was to make sure we, you market the business properly. So you don't put your house on the market. You don't wait for somebody to knock on your door if you want to sell your house, you put it on the market. That was the analogy I was given. And you really need to get your business into shape in the same way that you you know, you decorate your house or whatever for your photos and, and for visits. So we, you need an agent and we interviewed three agencies, if you like. So it was nice being on the other side of the table. And, and funnily enough, we chose the one that we just got on with the best. So the, we interviewed three that all obviously presented brilliantly because actually people do. If you, mm -hmm. I guess you get to a point where if you're asked to pitch for something, your pitch should be really good if you're operating at a certain level in anything. So there has to be another way. Um, and we, I mean, we went for a pint, I have to be honest, and really liked the guys. They were good fun. They'd, one of them had sold his business on the way up. And had a really good earn out. The other one actually had hung on to it probably for too long and ended up selling it slightly less than he could have done earlier. I really liked that uh, blend of experience because I was really nervous about selling too late. Okay. I always said, I'll never, I'll never mind if we sell too early because hopefully you'll make some money uh, as part of your earn out. But I would have been devastated if we'd missed a peak. Yeah. And, and, and it'd been like a fire sale. We interviewed them. They took us. They held our hands through what is a really difficult journey. Mike did the the sale bit. So he worked on all of the stuff in the background. I ran the business. Because one of the problems is right up until the day that you actually exchange, and that happened like at nine o'clock on a Friday night, you don't know. We didn't know at eight o'clock on the Friday night before we sold it if we were going in to work on Monday to announce it had been sold or if the deal was off. Yeah. And we'd worked, you know, it'd been something we'd worked on for 12 months. Wow. So super stressful and really, really hard to do if if you can't take somebody out of the business to do it. Because we had Mike, we had our accounts guy, Ray, who came in one day a week, uh, who was who knew. Um, Louise knew, who was kind of operations, sort of worked for, in Chris's team. Mm -hmm. She was trusty, trusted and, and amazing um, and did a great job. But really, we did a good job on keeping it very quiet and tell most of my family, to be honest, because you can't. Word gets out, the deal's probably going to be in trouble because your staff aren't going, to, you can't explain to them what's in it for them at that point. It yeah. would certainly would be very nerve wracking, I think, for yeah. people in unsettling. So it's really difficult. We eventually did do the deal at, like I said, nine o'clock on a, on a Friday night. And, and on the Monday morning, we announced we'd sold to Capita, which was probably a bit left field for most people. And we did have other options that probably looked like a better fit. You know, there were some billion turnover, they were huge. And they had a load of software. They were the second biggest software company in the UK, just behind Sage at the time. And they had loads of software, which they said that they wanted us to effectively bring up to date, um, using our you know, the user experience side of things, the design. And 
that was really exciting. They also had clients, massive clients that we couldn't necessarily get into as an independent where they owned contracts. So they pitched it very heavily to us that we were going to go in and be their uh, kind of exciting new yeah. digital agency. Whereas the other options we had, we kind of felt we would just get absorbed into, you know, a huge ecosystem very, very quickly. Uh, so that's why we chose them. But not everybody was thrilled about that when we announced it on the Monday. And in fact, I'll never forget, I, I did the Newcastle office. We had an office in London. Um, one up, did we have another one? Still in China. Anyway, we had one in London. And I announced it to the Newcastle office. And I can remember seeing one person in particular who looked straight at me and I knew instantly she was leaving. And I knew it. That there's no way in a millionaire she was staying. She, you know, she was written all over her face. She looked utterly devastated. And sure enough, you know, a week later, she handed a notice in and just said, I want to work for an independent. I've been here for a long time and that this isn't what I want. Yeah. And that was really, it was the first sign that <laughs> this might not go quite as well as I hoped it would. Mm-hmm. Really difficult, that bit. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think, you know, we were talking offline about that. Of, I think a lot of people didn't know what what you knew about the the conversations behind closed doors about what it looked like. Yeah. So people did look at this corporate that they actually didn't know a lot about. And and I think people who knew you and knew you and Mike and knew Chris and the team and knew that sort of the real authenticity and the culture that you'd built didn't get it. Yeah. But actually the positioning of it, when you really understood the positioning, I mean, looking at your behaviours even, sat with all of that, like the ability to do something new to have an opportunity to carve out something, to have access to exciting clients that you wouldn't have had access to before. Stimulates all of that vision piece in you, the creativity piece. But it was actually probably the very pieces that people didn't see from the outside looking in. But obviously it it unraveled a little bit. So talk us through, because going from your behavioural patterns of that, of that real creative piece, the fact that the brand was so important to you, and that piece around you liking to have... I suppose, control over that brand and that positioning. Talk us through what it then felt like when that started to unravel a little bit and you didn't have that full control over that anymore. Yeah. So then the warning sign came very early when, so we were given a business to run in Sheffield, uh, which had about 60 staff as part of the deal. And it was meant to count towards our number that we had to hit every year to to get the earn out. The earn out was considerable. The upfront payment was excellent as well, but the, we, the minute you, so you kid yourself before you sell a business that I'm going to get enough upfront and then if I don't like it, I'll just go. And the reality is the day you, that money hits your bank, you're already looking for the next bit mm-hmm. and everybody's the same. <laughs> so you, you kind of start and spend it in your head. So you really want to hit that number. So the business that they gave us was meant to count towards that. And very, very quickly it became apparent that it wasn't going to. And in fact, actually it, it was in deficit. It was going to cost money, not the other way around. And there was a lot of fires to fight in that business somebody mentioned there, Chris Kennedy was like, was we couldn't have done that bit without him because he's very operational driven. He was COO, yeah. an amazing detailed guy, picked up loads of stuff that I certainly wouldn't have done. I walked in and thought, don't really like the vibe of this place. We'll he basically that. had, <laughs> if we think about behaviours, Chris pretty much had, I mean, he had some that were similar to you, but that detail, that process yeah. really complemented with you, didn't it? But yeah. on a personality level, you still connected enough Very to be connected. So. Yeah, yeah, I'm meeting him for a curry tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, that Chris was brilliant in that bit where he went down and really got under the skin of the business mm-hmm. and realised actually very quickly that we had a problem. 
it wasn't just culture. I thought I could just go in and change the culture. And yeah. in fact, Mike and I went down, did a big speech, took everybody to the pub, which had never happened before. Uh, they'd never been taken to the pub en masse before. Captain Ellie had a heart attack when I put the expenses in because that's not, again, not what part of it. No, yeah. not what they do at all. Didn't like that at all. So, yeah, that 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 was a real challenge because suddenly what we found is half the team now were firefighting something instead of doing all the good stuff. And doing all the good stuff was the thing that everybody went to work for. That's what's enjoyable, not without its challenges. But it was always creative and largely, I would say, positive experiences. Suddenly we had something which was a hugely draining experience. It was negative. There was nothing positive coming out there. It was filled with contractors, so nobody really cared about it. They were there because they were getting paid more than the, they could down the street. And the minute they got offered more, which did happen, Sky Bet had an office down the road in Sheffield, and they just hoovered everybody up. They just went because there was no loyalty. Even your contractor, why yeah. Why would there be? So we ended up, I mean, we shut that business after about six or seven months. So I, ironically, I went in and did the big culture. You're going to love working for us. It's going to be fantastic. And this is what we do. And there's motor racing and there's, let's all go to the pub, yeah. And then six months later, Chris went down and shut it. <laughs> Chris played to his behaviours yeah. and went, did the I don't the know where that sits piece. on my on my map, but I totally bottled that one. I said I'm, <laughs> I'm far too busy for that. I had to concentrate on some other things at the time. So, yeah. But I actually, once I'd written it off, I, I wanted nothing to do with it. Yeah. Because we had so many other things to deal with. Next. It's that mm, yeah, bit, it isn't was. it? In your behaviours. And I think, you know, what's really nice, and thanks for sharing this, because often in you know, in leadership journeys, people can see the glamour of an exit mm -hmm. and they think, you know, that's like, that's the ultimate, you know, if you can exit out of something and, but actually nine times out of 10, there's often, you know, periods post that or when you're, you know, you, you're given, it's, it's difficult. It's not an easy journey. Yeah. And actually some of those failures are, they're the biggest learning points, but you don't learn from them or you don't feel like you benefit from them till post the happen, yeah. post that. And I think that's really tricky for people to understand, you know, they'll look at that and think, well, you had nothing to worry about. You exited your business, you know, but just, just conscious of time, Julian, because I could talk all day to you because the journey's so, <laughs> so interesting. Can you tell, tell us just a little bit about what it was like once you did exit. So once you got out of Orange Burst, because suddenly you've got such a massive purpose and such a big draw and you know, yeah, life was so busy with all of that and having a family. What did that feel like afterwards? There was a huge sense of relief, to be honest, but that's possibly because of the difficulty we had over the three years of the, of the year now. We ended up, because of the failure of the business in Sheffield, we ended up in kind of a dispute fairly early on over the terms of the, the, the purchase, if you like, in the year now. And we got an amendment uh, after about six or seven months and then it still wasn't enough it, it, the amendment didn't cover the deficit that we had so we went back again and at that time Capita went from f like £14.50 a share to about 12 pence I think and dropped miles out the FTSE and uh, you know really was on the verge of, of much bigger problems I don't think that was our fault but it was certainly our, <laughs> it was why we were there yeah. uh, just really unlucky timing and, and as a consequence everybody that was involved in buying the business had gone so they were all moved either sideways or out. And they, there was one person in particular that we trusted and we'd, we'd spoken to him and other companies that he'd acquired and he'd looked after them. We believed that he would look after us and we believed his, in his intentions. And actually I still do. But once he'd gone, the new people had no emotional attachment to us. They didn't owe us anything. All they had was a balance sheet and a bottom line that they had to deal with. And 
we were probably starting to become a bit of a pain to some of the hierarchy because we were complaining all the time mm -hmm. about the things that they were making us do, complaining about their structure, about their expenses, uh, you know, our expenses policy, which you know was used to just say, don't take the piss, and don't we expected piss, people yeah. not to take the piss, and nobody ever did on the yeah. whole. One night in Switzerland springs to mind where, <laughs> where several, me one. several members of the team did <laughs> did very much take the piss, and, and I found out when I went, got up the next morning and paid the bill. But it was an extremely rare occasion uh, occasion and then suddenly you're part of a PLC and the expenses policy details everything to the penny. Mm. And so we complained about that because guess what? Our expenses went up and they didn't go down. It didn't mm. help. It made it worse because everyone just spends the max. If there's a rule, you, you hit that point, don't you? So it just didn't work. And we complained about everything. I felt like we just did a lot of fighting, uh, um, a lot of kind of wishing that we weren't in that environment. And try, we tried, we gave up probably trying to make it better and just start trying to look after ourselves and, and the immediate team. So when I finally got out after a long negotiation, it was February, 2020, and I'd just been snowboarding. I had a great winter. I knew I was getting out. I had six months of like the best job ever where I stepped down as CEO, appointed James Hall, mm -hmm. who did a great job. He'd used, he was used to corporates. I had this new title, which was um, brand ambassador. Amazing. <laughs> Still at a car. I mean, that's exactly what your patterns, ah, you should have just it. done it all you made for. Yeah. Yeah, loved it. And uh, I, I had a car parking space in town. I used to get out, I used to go in late. I would go and say hello, have a coffee, go to the gym, have a shower uh, in the because we had a shower in the office, have a chat with have some people. Have all the flexibility. Yeah, go for the lunch. Right yeah, yeah. And, then, and then maybe do some more chats and go home for the school run. Amazing for six months. And then I got a phone call from my boss who sat on the main board of Capra and he said, oh, you came up in conversation today. Somebody asked what you were doing and uh, I haven't got a clue. <laughs> <laughs> so I got rumbled. Uh, but yeah, it was a relief to leave by then. Yeah. Loads of plans, absolutely tons of them. Uh, we had friends out in California I wanted to go and see, go to some conferences, really try and see what was out there now that, you know, we had a little bit of money, a lot of time and still loads of enthusiasm and energy I was kind of, what, 45-ish or something. Um, and then, I don't know, a little bit older than that, 46. Then if COVID came like a month later. Wow. Just this thing called a global yeah. pandemic. And just You know, I genuinely, it feels ridiculous even complaining about it because I, we had a fantastic summer. That first summer, because I didn't have to work, my wife wasn't working, three young kids, the nice big garden. We live at the coast with, you know, the beach down one street and fields behind us. So... Really, we were really lucky. We had yeah. a fantastic time that summer. Kind of dragged on a bit, but... Um, and I, we didn't have to worry about work. We didn't have to worry about anything. But actually, it meant that by the time all of that was done, suddenly it was, well, actually, now what are we going to do? Because we didn't really have... It was a bit late. To, I felt late. It isn't, actually, as I've since found out. But it felt that I'd done nothing for two years all of a sudden. Yeah. Um, so... So it hasn't come out as challenges that you, there is a, a sense, you know, being, being totally honest, um, there is a sense where you think, well, actually, it, it, I used to like it when I've had something to say, people actually gave a shit. And <laughs> now my kids don't. And <laughs> does anybody listening anymore? My friend Steve Drummond, who owns Drummond Central, did make it a million times worse by telling me that I used to be a captain of industry and now I'm a captain of nothing. Which I thought was <gasps> That's what you want your friends Ruta. for, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, but it actually felt like that for a while. And you've just got to snap out of that a little bit and think, 
Uh, what are you going to do next? And actually, what do you want? And I've been right around the houses with it. At one point, I thought I'd start something else. Definitely didn't want to do another agency. Couldn't quite, haven't found, I assumed I would find something else that would be, re, that would be really passionate about. And I'm genuinely, nothing came, I haven't come across anything where I thought, I want to do that. That's the thing that I want to now throw myself at. And I think that's because of a really nice time with my family. I didn't, my first, my older two boys, my daughter's kind of 26 and at university and had kind of grown up. But my older two boys were young when I was building the business. And I, I didn't really see them. And my mm. wife looked after them. She did all the hard work at home while I was off working and you know having a pint with somebody or waiting for a client to randomly drop into a pub, which I used to do often just so I could try and close a deal. And which sounds great, but it actually isn't. No. And I got to 40 and suddenly thought, I, I literally haven't seen my kids and, yeah. and I haven't seen them grow up. So I certainly was given that time, especially with COVID, to have that experience. And I really enjoyed it. But maybe now that it's getting to a point where I think, I could probably do with using my brain again. Yeah. So I'm starting to do a little bit more now where putting those skills and that experience. And I think the experience of actually selling to a big corporate has been really, Absolutely. For, for all it was awful, most of it, the actual experience in terms of my learning and my own development and that actually of the senior team, they all became much, much better, I think, in terms of their own careers for the future because of that learning experience. Sometimes you've got to take a, what is a, relatively negative experience when you're going through it and understand what it's doing for you yeah. uh, in terms of your overall growth. Absolutely. And I think, you know, with your behavioural patterns, once you once that thing drops, it'll be quick. Yeah. So watch stay tuned face. and watch this space. <laughs> Can I just say we've enjoyed listening I to know. you and I'm yeah. sure our, um, our listeners will. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, Julian. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for Thank having you. me. Really enjoyed it. Well, hopefully you loved that episode as much as we did recording it with Julian. So just to wrap up on a few takeaways, the first being around understanding that if you're a founder in a business or a co-founder in a business, that often subconsciously you will have built a business around your dominant behaviours. So if we think about Julian, some of his dominance around that whole big picture vision, the flexibility, the variety having an opportunity to work within a business that was driving change, that when you go through a sale process, it's highly likely that you will sell and then be part of, if you're remaining in the business, a business that may well not play to those dominant behaviours. So you sort of heard Julian talk about how he then found himself having to deal with detail and process and not be able to take a lead on all of the decisions that actually a lot of that experience post-sale was actually the very opposite of his dominant behaviours. And that's why when you heard him talking about it, he described that as feeling so draining. That last six months where he sort of lit up again, you, you saw that shift back to working in a way that was much more in line with his dominance. So just being conscious of that, if you're somebody that's thinking about a sale or going through a sale process, that be prepared for that adjustment, um, that it might not always play to the behaviours that you've maybe been playing to up to now. The second piece of it was around understanding that we had a conversation around people who have that power motivation in them. So they're motivated by leading, by taking control, that sometimes that can stifle the scale of a business. If you let that get to the point where you need to have power and control over everything, 
What Julian was able to recognise, that even though that's a dominant pattern for him, was that he remained part of decisions and held on to certain things like the brand of the business and the brand direction, but was really able to let go and delegate the actual doing to different people. And that enabled that scale up process to still happen while stimulating that motivation. And then the final piece is Julian was really purposeful about the fact that when they started the business, the idea for him and Mike starting out was to sell. So that was really intentional from the very beginning. Sometimes the misconception with that can be that if you are scaling a business for sale, that culture and people aren't important. And often we see scaling businesses that have a real eye on that end destination, which is the sale, and almost forget about the journey. What Julian really described really lovely was about they were so focused on running a business that they wanted to be part of, a business that was fun, was doing exciting things. So that for them, although they had that real clear eye on the the end point, which was selling, they actually enjoyed the journey as much as they did that sale as the destination. So just remembering that if that's a goal for you, if the sale is the piece for you, that actually don't get so focused on that end destination that you miss the journey and, and what that feels like. Thank you for listening to the Misbehave podcast. Hit subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. 